Welcome to Your Live Well, the podcast series bringing you expert-led advice, thoughts and opinions from across the breadth of well-being and from some of the amazing contributors featured at Live Well London 2020. In this episode, we join Niraj Shah, entrepreneur, stroke survivor, meditation guide and co-founder of Mind Unlocked to explore the relationship between technology and our mental well-being in achieving digital balance. Niraj and a panel of experts explore what happens to our brains when we use technology, the pros and cons of this constantly evolving relationship and glimpses into what the future may hold. Enjoy and we hope this podcast helps to bring you some digital balance. Uh, Thank you for coming. This panel is all about the relationship between technology and the human mind. So when LiveWell asked me to run a session on this, um, I thought the best thing that I could do is bring three of my friends along who know this subject um, a lot better than me. Um, I myself, this this is a subject that I completely nerd out about. The, The background to this is that 10 years and four days ago at the age of 30 i had a full-blown stroke out of nowhere very serious brain injury i've been very lucky to recover but that forced me to take a mild interest in health and well-being into an absolute obsession with health wellness brain function what what happens with a brain injury how our brains work and it just took me down this complete rabbit hole which has led me to what i'm doing today Um, and, and in addition to that, so, so I run a mental well-being company, which kind of looks at digital balance amongst other things. And I also have a very privileged position with a group in Silicon Valley called the Transformative Technology Lab. And they have built a global community of entrepreneurs and tech firms who are working on technology specifically designed to raise mental health and emotional well-being. So that's everything from meditation apps to sleep technology to uh, digital medicine, neurofeedback, biofeedback, um, AI, etc., etc. So that's the that's the background. Um, I'm just going to ask each of these wonderful folks to introduce themselves briefly and then we'll get into a discussion. So uh, welcome, uh, Zara, Christina, Tony. Um, we'll start, start, actually no, we'll start, at this, we'll start at this end. So Tony, please introduce yourself. So hi everyone, I'm Tony Langford. I'm co-director of the Mindfulness Center of Excellence. Uh, and uh, I look at how we can bring creative techniques and also using technology to make mindfulness more accessible, but also to make the idea of how we can be more connected and more in the present moment and using creativity and technology to do that. And I also co-lead something called Consciousness Hacking in London, which, uh, which also originated in San Francisco. And then we meet up every month to explore how we can harness technologies and technological growth for human flourishing. Great. Hi, I'm Christina Barger. Um, can everybody hear me? Yeah, great. Okay. Um, I'm a former clinical psychologist. I started working in tech in 2013. Um, I now consult with tech companies that want to build evidence-based um, products of, across a range of technologies, whether it's AI or um, IoT, all kinds of things, machine learning. Um, I have a company called Cogenta, which is where I do that. I'm also an advisor at um, Tech Mental Health, sorry, Hack Mental Health, which is also a Silicon Valley-based uh, originally um, organization that's trying to find new innovative solutions in bridging mental health care, clinical care, research, and tech. 
Um, and yeah, I also am a cognitive scientist. So it's something that I did sort of for fun five years ago. Um, but I find that it's, uh, well, I did it at degree level, not just a hobby level. Sorry, <laughs> I have a postgrad degree. Um, and I find this becoming more and more and more relevant. Um, that's actually sort of the scientific interface of our brains and of, let's say, software, computers, and tech. Um, so I'll be happy to talk more about that later. Uh, I'm Zerk Retati. I'm one of the founders of Mind. Uh, we're AI and neuroscience company. Um, and our mission is to help every individual to better understand themselves, so to better understand um, different um, processes that happen in their bodies and how the environment affects those. Um, so the technology that we're developing, it basically allows for uh, more everyday access to this very advanced uh, technologies like uh, biometrics, um, neurofeedback, um, and we use artificial intelligence to do that. Um, my background is in design, so a lot of this was kind of a personal journey uh, where I realized just how little I understood about my own brain and how my behaviors and um, decisions in everyday uh, were affected by things that I didn't really have conscious control of. And uh, so I got more into uh, educational aspect of that as well. So I advocate a lot for neuroscience literacy um, through various uh, projects and activities. Um, and I think it's very important to the kind of work that um, uh, they're doing in terms of just better understanding for education, for designing products. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the story uh, where I come from. Great, thank you for the intros. So it's quite clear that the rapid rise of technology in the last 20 years, especially in the last 10 years, has really, and specifically mobile, social, social, and always on technology, has clearly contributed heavily to the rapid spikes we're seeing around the world in stress, anxiety, insomnia, digital addiction. Um, and it can be argued that we already have too much technology in our lives. So I want to open this panel with a question to each of you uh, around what what role could technology play and should technology play in actually redressing that balance and helping us improve our mental well-being? So actually, I'll, I'll go back in the opposite order and start with you, Zara. Uh, yeah, so I think um, there's a lot we can do with technology. And again, kind of coming for me personally from the design angle, there's a lot that we can do to have more positive impact. That's not something that's been part of design of a lot of the, um, the tech that we use in our everyday. And I think there's an increased awareness now where you know people are starting to talk about it. Um, there's a great initiative now also in Silicon Valley, and surprisingly, uh, called Center for Humane Technology. Uh, where they're kind of advocating to and de developing frameworks to have companies adopt better practices um, and uh, how to basically use technology, how to design technology in a more beneficial way, taking into account, um, you know, psychology and neuroscience and mental well-being. Um, so, I mean, I'm in a position where is it I, I work in technology and I chose a technology route to to help improve human well-being. Um, and so I think technology has a very powerful position like where there's a lot that we can do that we can't do without technology, but equally the responsibility um, and how we apply that tech and who designs it is extremely, extremely important. Great, thank you. And um, same question, Christina, what role do you think technology can and should play in helping us solve these problems? Hmm. 
Sorry, it's a, a little bit of a difficult question because it's sort of a chicken and the egg. The, the problem comes from tech in large part, but we also have enormous potential with technology. So sometimes people are, are you know, maybe afraid of tech or maybe addicted to tech. And I think that the issue comes down to design, um, to responsibility. I don't want to sort of uh, be redundant with what Sarah said. But tech companies have, I think, a big obligation to start designing things in more responsible ways. Tech has previously sort of all been designed of the consumer model, which is a sales model, and to sort of grab your attention and get you in. Um, and there are more companies that are now sort of more responsible and that really genuinely have the well-being of, of consumers in mind. But we have to always remember as well that this is still a business. Anything that you buy or that you use on your phone or your, your mobile, your, your, sorry, your laptop, it's all a business. So the wellness aspect is a little bit slippery relative to going to a doctor or to someone who's who doesn't have a conflict of interest per se, who, who sort of is only there to give you best case advice. Um, so I think there's a couple of things as consumers. One is to do your research, to pay attention as much as you can to how much tech you're using. Be aware that it is designed with conflicting priorities, yes, to help you, but also to, to grab your attention um, so that you stay on it more and so that they make more money. Um, and then. Since I've been very negative, just let me say one thing that I think is, is really incredible about tech. Um, well, there's a couple of things. There's first that it has the potential, because of the potential to scale, the potential to reach so many people. It also has the potential to, you know, to addict many people. But because of that, it can sort of help all of the people that are unreached by, by doctors, by psychiatrists, by psychologists, or well-being practitioners. Well-being practitioners are expensive. They're hard to reach. And you need a one-to-one -one usually, or maybe like a group-to-one sort of delivery. But tech can go out to everybody all the time. You can access it at your convenience. You know, when you're not feeling well, it's always there. So it's, it's really, uh, it has this sort of potential to help millions and millions of people. It also has the potential um, to be a little bit more sensitive because it's going out to everybody. So this scares people a little bit. But because we can access so many people, we can also draw on lots of people's data. And that allows us to become more and more accurate in how we detect problems or potential to help people, potential for well-being. So tech has a really big role to play in the preventative space and in increasing the well-being, sort of looking or helping you to understand whenever things are starting to maybe get a little trickier than you would realize yourself. Tech can, can help you in that period sort of be aware. That makes sense or didn't make sense. I'm happy to explain more later. Sure, I, I will. I'm going to dig into that a little bit in a moment, but just to um, keep opening up the conversation, I'm really interested, Tony, on your point of view as well around, around you know what role should or can technology play in redressing these issues or, or that tech has caused. Yeah, it, it definitely has a role. I think I think there's a responsibility both. Um, on the uh, the technology distributors and creators, um, but as well, just following on from what you were saying on the on the on the consumers as well, um, there was there was a um, an inquiry in the UK Parliament earlier this year into uh, immersive and, and addictive technologies, and uh, a lot of the evidence that kind of came before that it sort of showed how some some of some of the, the big uh, technology creators like the gaming companies weren't really taking that responsibility, and they were kind of saying. Oh no! It's actually up to the the parents to kind of manage how, for instance, children uh, play these games and so on. Um, but there is there, there is there's the responsibility um, uh, with with both, I think. Um, and um, 
I think I think I think a lot of the time with the way, the way that we uh, consume technology and the way it's kind of coming at us from all angles, it's like a, there's like a sort of um, um, a, a kind of mini fight or flight response each each time each time we're being hit by these different uh, notifications and technologies and so on. So uh, from from the point of view of how that technology is created, it's starting to think about rather than how this tech is kind of heightening our emotional systems, how it can kind of dampen them and calm them down. So thinking about how we can be more compassionate around that and so on. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna come back to that as well in a second. Before that, uh, Christina, you started talking a little bit about the lack of outcome studies and the lack of, um, uh, I guess the lack of real research on what the actual effect of um, technology um, technological products has been on us. So if we start thinking about the, the kind of technology that most of us use, which would filter down to um, email, social media, gaming, entertainment, those, those kind of things, um, how can we know whether it's having a harmful or helpful effect on us and what can we do about it? Um, I think one of the biggest things that tech does that we don't even realize is overwhelm us, sort of overwhelm our brains because we're constantly being bombarded with stimuli. If you think about, I'm just going to step back for a second, the past, let's say prior to our obsessions with our phones, we would... So be, just to interject, we're, we're talking about maybe 12 years ago. Yes. It's not, it's not that yes. long ago. Yeah. <laughs> not, not our, yeah. So 10 or 20 years ago, just prior to phones, right? We would be entertained by TV, by conversation, but our brains were just sort of processing a few things, like maybe a storyline or, you know, that's interrupted by commercials. Now when we're looking at our phones or we're looking, I think a Facebook homepage is an excellent example. There are so many things that are competing for your attention on that screen. And there's so many things competing for your attention every moment of every day. And it's actually overwhelming cognitively for your brain. So there are now studies, I'd say the last five or six years, a lot of them come from schools um, to see the impact or to see the changes in children's brains from, from the past. And some of the things that we've seen are the kids are more impulsive, they're more, uh, they have less ability to control their, their emotional reactions, less ability to control their, their attention spans, so they can't process information as deeply. They're more impulsive and they're more sort of aggressive because their emotions spike, right? So this is happening because their brain is being retrained to sort of jump all over the place and they've lost the ability to, to focus in the same way that perhaps kids in the past did. So if you feel yourself, if you feel in your own mind that it's starting to get just very sort of what Buddhists call monkey mind, just jumping from topic to topic, if you find that you're a little more irritable, that you're having a harder time relax, to relax and calm your brain and focus on one thing, which is exactly why meditation is rising so much, right? I think people are subconsciously trying to counteract the effects of this bombardment on their brains. But if you see those things start to happen, then maybe take a step back, just a little detox, you know, try to put the phone down, try to do something else, meditate or read or something that's it's almost like brain exercise in, the, in a different way. Let's just jump in on of that course, because yeah. I think it's such a great point. And I think one of the issues with information diet, if you like, is that we can't, like what's, what, how it affects our mind and our behaviors, we can't see that. Somebody posted something which I really liked um, about, you know, when you eat food and you're on a bad diet, at some point your body shows, you know, the signs. And it's, it's more obvious whether you put on weight or, you know, something else. But with the mind diet, unless you're attuned to that and you look at, after that in the same way and you look for these 
signs. Um, we just don't know that. And um, as simple as, so, you know, the language, for example, the kind of language we use. So there's, you probably speak on that more, but there's a lot of research in terms of just the kind of words we use and how can that affect our you know, our mental states and our own perception of ourselves and, um, you know, how we speak to our children, our partners or other people and how that affects them. So all these things, it's it's an equivalent of a diet that, you know, just the, the same way how you look after your body. Um, and I think that's something very important, but we don't have enough literacy around that as a society. Um, and I think part of that is that a lot of the neuroscience research is fairly recent as well, exactly. right? So we didn't know a lot of that. Um, so I think it's a great time now where we have that research but it's just bringing that awareness to to all of us to everyday um, use yeah definitely and it's, it's something that I've noticed with my work with uh, transformative technology lab is that we do the mental health conversation is open in in most of the Western world now and that's absolutely amazing because again that's just happened in the last three or four years but the but one of the sort of unintended consequences of that is that um, especially with our younger adults and adolescents they now know about terms like severe anxiety and uh, you know chronic stress but they we don't have the literacy around mental fitness so that they are now mislabeling discomfort as chronic anxiety and then taking that to a counselor and burdening those kind of services and you know some of those cases will be but but a lot of them won't and one of the things that I'm really hoping will change and and we're starting to see shoots of this is that we're starting to change our language around uh mental well-being and mental health in the same way we talk about well-being and health care for the physical body um I want to dive into something Tony touched on uh I just you know that tech could be more compassionate and it could be more useful. What, what's your take on the rapid rise of meditation apps and mindfulness technology? And do you think they're helpful or a hindrance overall? Uh, I think many of them are helpful to a, to a lot of people. And uh, uh, certainly the, the popularity of apps like Headspace sort of goes, goes to show that uh, they are certainly helping a lot of people. But I think you know, there's, there's, there's hundreds of, uh, of mindfulness apps out there now but a lot of them aren't really what I would call mindfulness um, I think maybe a lot of them are more what you might describe as, as relaxation apps um, and there's clearly a, a, a value in that for sure but it's slightly different from, from mindfulness in terms of really connecting people to their experience what's going on in their mind what's going on in their body um, are they really helping people to connect to themselves and then from there to connect to other people and from there to connect to, to the environment, to the planet and so on. Um, so, uh, yeah, my, my sense that a lot of the time is that, 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 that some of these apps are more distraction. That, that, so they're more about distraction. That they're, they're more about um, taking you into another world, distracting you from what's really going on with you and putting you in some other world, which is kind of what we tend to think of when when we think of entertainment and when we think of what media has been traditionally, it's been about that. It's been, you know, whether, whether it's um, uh, watching TV, watching a film, or for that matter, even reading a book, it's about kind of an escape and, uh, and, and you're avoiding um, really connecting to yourself. Um, so, uh, so there's, there's, there's a, I think there's a sort of question of definition around there with, with yeah. mindfulness as well. But, but, ultimately, but ultimately, this is, I do think that, that technology does have this power if used, if used in the right way to really connect people 
as opposed to what it often does, which is to distract. Yeah, it's, it's, a re- it's a really good point because I think the, the first generation of meditation apps, Headspace, Calm, those sort of things, it's, it's amazing that their growth alone shows what the interest in those services are and how many millions of people around the world they're helping. But at the same time, they're actually quite passive experiences. And there's nothing wrong with that as a starting point. But what, what they're not doing yet is really helping us to connect to ourselves in a deeper way and more importantly probably connect with others and again some of the early stuff that I'm seeing in terms of the next generation of meditation apps which are being funded um, that, that there's one as a New York called Journey which has just done quite a big funding round and that they're more geared towards connecting with others so actually using technology as a medium to connect with other real life people um, and having live group meditations that kind of thing uh, I think Insight Timer is doing a great job of um you know sort of building the connectivity within within its app so it's rather than it being a technological solution it's more like a technological layer that helps us in the end actually be more human and i think i think there's a lot to be said for technologies which will um, help us to be and act and feel more human um as, as a potential counterbalance to that uh, you know a question zara that i've been dying to ask you and i think i think uh, others in a room might be interested in should, should we be worried about the rise of ai um well ai is a is thrown around a lot it's a broad term right so i think what's important what i'll do now is and so there's distinguish to distinguish agi which is artificial de- um de- artificial general intelligence which is usually when you read any headlines and you know you see all this doomsday and will it take over so that's artificial ge- general intelligence which is you know effectively having the same ability to perform tasks as a human does um, but then you have ai which is something that we have and use a lot in the world today is more machine learning and it's more narrow applications of AI. So, Could, could um, you just, just with, with those two terms, I mean, you, you, you said uh, uh, AGI yeah. is, is the um, dystopian future of a machine having the same capabilities as a human, but uh, ju- just for the non-technologists in the room, just explain what, you know, what, what does machine learning mean in terms of what's actually happening in AI today? Yeah, so it's, I mean, in the simple terms, I think the best way to look at it is just the technology that is able to uh, process very large amounts of data and make sense of that. Uh, and we use that for, um, you know, detecting and spotting like patterns um, that we just, as, as a human, you know, we can't do. So it's used a lot in medicine, for example. Now there's a lot of applications where, you know, the we're able to detect uh, anomalies much faster than a human uh, professional would, um, and generally with more accuracy in some cases. Um, and then it's also like things like personalization, right? Where you have something like that, you can create solutions that are more personalized, that you know that really understand you and are able to to give you things that are more personal. So in case with well, in the space that we're talking about in healthcare, I think in in wellness space, this is. Um, I think these would be the kind of applications. So in case with AGI, yes, I think there are a lot of concerns, there are a lot of issues. Um, and you know, it's mostly where, again, we can't use technology to solve problems just because it can do something well. We can't just trust it. And how do we, so trust is a big issue. Explainability within AI is a big issue. And that's the thing where uh, when an algorithm's 
it gives you a prediction or gives you an answer, even if it's accurate. There, there's certain algorithms that we as humans don't know how they came to that conclusion. So the fact that they're accurate, and but then we don't understand why you know it inferred to come to that conclusion, it can be very important when we're outsourcing uh, technologies like that to make decisions. Um, so um, yes, I think there, there are a lot of concerns and uh, dangers around that. But equally, like I said, there's a lot, and, and like Christina said, there are a lot, a lot of benefits. And it's just something, it's, an, it's a massive enabler, um, and it can help us um, do a lot of things that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise. Um, so the measures, I think, you know, obviously the ethics is, is very important. A, a lot of the bias, which is a, a big issue in AI, and it's talked about a lot as well, um, it's also bias that we have in a society, right? So it's not just, well, you know, that this is inherent bias in the way those algorithms are, uh, but it comes from, again, who designs and trains um, and, you know, works with that data, and then um, yeah, how we as a society are and what changes we want to make on individual level as well to kind of to change that course. So I think it's, it's an exciting time um, as well because we can pave a course uh, and it's kind of in our hands to really see where a lot of that goes. And it comes back to, I guess, self-improvement and, you know, what Again, we touched on already in terms of business motivations, personal motivations, you know, why people start companies, why they're developing certain things. I think as a business for us, that was a big challenge as well, because we, on the one hand, we had this technology that we wanted to develop that doesn't exist now. So right now, I don't know how stressed I am. I can't objectively, with scientific tools in my everyday measure, you know, my, my mental well-being. Uh, but then at the same time, if I, you know, to have a product like that, it's a business. So, you know, how do you protect your, the users and the people that you want to help? Um, so there's a lot of decisions that, you know, as an entrepreneur, we, we have to uh, make. Um, and the motivations behind doing things matter as well, because every step of the way, how you design the technology, what investors you bring on board, um, that all has to be part of that same story. So. For sure. For sure, I think I think um, the whole thing with AI is that uh, uh, we we on, on the tech side we realise it's a real double-edged sword. That there's so much we can do, but the concern is, um, you know, if the, if this isn't in responsible hands, then that, that there's a lot of potential damage that can be caused. And I think I think, I think a lot of it's imp it's an important point to make, and it will lead on to the sort of next thing I want to explore. A lot of the technology that is quite harmful today, it was never intended that way. It was never, you know, when, when Mark Zuckerberg was uh, making a matching website so that his uh, college buddies could basically rate if, rate if each other's hot or not, he wasn't thinking about swinging political elections. That's just an unintended consequence. And it's the same with, the, the, you know, YouTube and Netflix and Twitter and uh, like video gaming. But I think what's happened at some point when they've become really big businesses and decisions are being made to maximize the shareholder return on those businesses instead of the consumer well-being, that that's when we've run into these problems. And we can see there's a very clear conflict of interest. And I think thus far, the big tech companies, they've not really been willing to priority of ties consumer well-being even though they want to make those noises because they don't want to alienate their crowds on on that 
note, um, you know, most consumer-facing technology is designed to be at, at addictive. It is designed to grab our attention and hook us in. Uh, and then with advances in cognitive neuroscience and psychology, it actually makes te technological ability even more powerful. So this question is aimed at Christina, but I'd be happy for, for like all of you to chip in. What, what are some of the tricks that tech products employ and um, it, you know, what, what, how can we be more aware of those things? So I actually want to answer that in, in sort of two parts. One is a nod back to what we were just talking about with AI. Um, I think one of the biggest issues that we didn't cover with AI is, is, is privacy. So all of the, the AI is now becoming very, very sophisticated. And all kinds of things that you do in your, in your devices can be measured. They're collected and then they're measured just to look for patterns and for predictability. So when I say all kinds of things, I mean how quickly you type. Do you type the A and the E together more quickly than you do the A and the R? Like it's crazy. But those things combined with your credit history and your shopping and how many times a day you, you know, you, you hit the like button on, on a Monday morning and oh, I, I, it's just endless. I could go on and on and on with the variables, but with those, when they're all sort of put together into a composite across a huge database, you can start to predict a lot of things. You can predict mental well-being, you can predict schizophrenia, you can predict propensity to buy, to vote. So those kinds of like data privacy issues are one of the biggest things, um, the biggest issues for me with AI, because I don't really think AI, the, the general AI is a big deal. The robots are not going to take over the world because Robots are sort of, computers are controlled by programming, which is languages, so we can already give them rules and stop them. But getting back to the second question, where I'm sort of bridging and bleeding into it, to protect yourself, I, this is the biggest question to me, the privacy and what you're actually sharing when you're using social media. You're sharing so much more than you know that you're sharing, right? Does it really matter? I don't know. It's great that we have all this data because then we can do more things with the data. We can you know, build more useful applications, more useful approaches and sort of prevention and diagnostics and, all, and care. Um, but there's nothing really you can do at this point. You, know, you just sort of change your privacy settings as much as you can, limit your use if you really care or just throw your hands up in the air, I guess. Um, so there is that. So anything that you're seeing that's for free it's never for free because they're always collecting your data. So that's one of the things. The business model of a company, of an app, of a, of a platform, anything, it, it may be, you may think, oh, it's just advertising. That's a little bit, but the biggest thing is your data. So you can actually look, um, if you check out any of the GDPR things, or if you just say accept, accept, okay, fine. But if you ever don't accept and you look at them and you see how many people they're, they're selling your information to. Last week I looked at some random website. I don't remember what it was. It was something reasonable. I think it was like a, a news website in Europe. In the Netherlands, maybe, and they were selling my data, like parts of my data, to over three thousand two hundred and seventy something vendors, I think. And what are they selling? You have no idea. I mean, it can even tech is also sensitive. It can detect your movements, like it, it knows everywhere you go because location tracking is on. You almost can't turn that off with many of the features that you use on your phones. So that's one of the things. Be aware that nothing's just, really just free. Just on that note, I, th I think it's actually yeah. a really good point. Um, if you hadn't brought it up, I definitely wanted to. The, the general thing to remember with technology, 
if a piece of tech is free, it means you're the product. Yes. And, and that, that in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. That doesn't mean that, that it's wrong or that, um, or, or w whatever. It just means, from my perspective, just be aware of that. So understand that, that there is a trade-off and you've got to decide for yourself if that trade-off is acceptable. And in a lot of cases it is. One of the things that I think is going to happen over the next few years is I think now that we're becoming much more aware of like our own data and the value of it to all of these companies, um, I, I'm not sure how this is going to happen, but I can see it happening, is that I think we are going to start having, taking back more control of our data and be able to effectively say, yes, I'll sell it to this company, but not to that one. Yes, I'll do this, no, that. And I think we will actually start seeing influencers monetize, being able to monetize their data and then that will filter down to hopefully individuals being able to monetize our data as well um, so you know that that's uh, it's a bit of an abstract concept at the moment but I, but I can really see something like that happening which I think would be a wonderful way to bring some balance back to what's a very unfair um, equation at the moment yeah uh yeah, no, I just wanted to add, I think that's, that's a very, very important point. And again, it's too much to ask from a consumer, right? I mean, how many apps do we look at? Yeah. And like, you, you, it's, they make it impossible to read. Like, they're yeah. pages and pages. Of legalese, Intentionally, yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's not just that you won't bother to read, but half of that you won't even understand, yes. right? And the way, I mean, dealing with lawyers, again, like, because, you know, when you're dealing with biometric data, for example, as part of GDPR, that's called a special, it's a special group of processing data. So you have to treat it uh, as a vendor different uh, as, a, as a product different as a company differently than other type of data and just to say the way how you can phrase things I mean it's so misleading and I've seen because I was looking at other companies to see you know what's the best policy for us to adopt and it's so how how do you do that as a consumer right and I think business model understanding again too much to ask but I think just common sense around understanding what the motivations for the business and what their business model and just advertising I mean that's the main right that's their main income right because they they, they have to sell that data um, in some sense so uh, but then again I think it comes to lit for me like literacy and just being more informed because the more questions and you know we're small players but the more questions as consumers we ask and we look um, it changes are happening and regulation is hasn't really kept up with the progress of technology but you know the, with the small steps I think it is happening and um, again it's responsibility of companies to really come into that space so with um, ICO which is uh, you know the regulator or, um, of the data they have and we're looking into that now as our company and I don't know I, I'm hoping that a lot of the companies that are developing these kind of technology that are in this gray area where there's no regulations that are very explicit about the use of that but you can work uh, with the regulators to really help pave way for certain use of that um, of, the, of the technology and of the data which then hopefully affects others so you know I mean as a yeah as a company I think yeah if we can have the right motivations but take more role in actually shaping the regulation around those things um, I think that's very important just 
So I mean, just I'm just going back to what you were saying, giving the example of Facebook and and, and, and the unintended consequences of what happened there. I think um, the key is in is in is intention that, that ultimately at Facebook there was a key intention there yeah. to maximise shareholder yeah. value, uh, and so then it completely at, at the expense of everything. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but now, I, but you know, I think people are much more aware of these things now, and um, certainly consumers are much more kind of conscious of all, all, all these issues around data, and so companies need to be more aware of that and that if, if, if ultimately values are shifting they need to shift to reflect that too so so I think slowly um, uh, you know the, 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 the th- things are shifting towards other concerns like social environmental mm. yeah um, and uh, um, so we have this thing called a mindful 360 process that looks at all of these different by what we call biopsychosocial biological in terms of the effect that the technology might have on the body and brain um, psychological, the effect on the mind, and social, it's it's wider kind of um, environmental concerns. And, and companies now have to have this much, much broader view now, just narrowly thinking on what, what's the bottom line is on its on its own. Um, not going to work for the for, for these companies. So so that so things are starting to shift to take mm. to take an optimistic view on things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think just just to yeah. just um just to kind of tie that point up, it feels like as a set of con- consumers, i.e., people who use the tech, the end users, we're, we're starting to wake up a little bit to a lot of what's going on, and that's what makes a discussion like this so important because you can, you can take things from this, and we we can you know sort of grow the awareness around this, and it ultimately you know. Um, when enough consumers are talking about and caring about these things, that's what's going to force change at a corporate level because they'll they'll have to or they'll lose they'll lose uh, customers. Um, we we are drawing towards the end of this. Before we do that, I just want to ask: like, do we have any questions? We've got time for one, maybe two. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? We can. Awesome. Oh, we Thank can. you. Yeah, we can. We can. Okay, oh. hang on. Yeah. <laughs> Do we have enough of these? Um, no. I'll, I'll, I'll repeat okay. the question back to these guys. Yeah. Tell us, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you so much for your insights. It's so fascinating. Um, I was watching the TED talk that Cal Newport did um, about kind of quitting social media and how we kind of find excuses to not quit because we don't want to miss out. We think that, you know, being on social media is what's going to get us ahead. All of these excuses that we have for using it and being so obsessed. Um, You hear these rumors that kind of the tech people in Silicon Valley, uh, Valley, the um, Mark Zuckerbergs of the world are putting their kids in schools without tech. And, you know, I, I don't know if any of you have children, that's not the question, is what would you tell the next generation in terms of what you know um, that they should be conscious of about how they use technology in, in terms of specific behaviors? You know, should we be putting our phones away more often? Like what are the practical things that we need to be teaching our kids in, in the next generation? Just um, very quickly on that one, from a personal perspective, I don't have kids, but I get a lot of people with kids asking that same question. And, and the first thing I ask them back is, tell me about your tech behavior, especially around your kids, because my, my observation is that kids copy what they see, not not what they're told. Um, do you have kids? Yeah. Yeah. So what yeah. do you tell your kids? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I've got uh, I've got two boys, six and eight. Um, I mean, it's it's about balance, really. Um, I mean, yeah, it's 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 an issue the whole screen time thing, uh, and yeah, it's it's kind of the easy option for them uh, um, to, to 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 grab the screen. Um, but actually, there's there's this thing, there's this exercise I do with 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 my boys in terms of really looking at what nourishes them, and uh, the, the the screens and the tech didn't didn't come on on top at all. In fact, it didn't really make the list. Uh, it's very much about it's about play for them, get, getting outside, um, other forms of gaming other than get the games on screens. But they will still go to that because it's just an easy hook. But actually, if you give them the choice, they want to do they, they want to do other things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's it's you know the use of technology is a unnatural thing. So it on, only really you know sets hold the more we use it. And kids don't naturally actually want to use technology. It's something they're given, and then they start adopting behaviour. Um, so we're. Um, I'm just gonna finish off by asking each of you where we can find you. Um, there's so much more we could talk about on this, so you know you can find us outside afterwards. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, Zera, where, where where can we find you? And I think you've got a um, you've got an offer as well. Uh, yeah, well, so we're testing our technology still. Um, uh, we're releasing it to the first uh, user groups now to people that want to try it. Uh, we're not selling it yet, so if you're interested to try and sign up for technology, I have some flyers actually here with me or our website is mind.com m-a-a-i-n-d.com uh, but you can pick up some flyers if you want to sign up and learn a little bit more about it yeah. the best way to connect with me is just to come up and speak with me or to look for me on LinkedIn I'm not huge into marketing so. <laughs> uh, yeah you can find me on LinkedIn Tony Langford and also um, the Mindfulness Center of Excellence website which is mindfulnesscenterofexcellence.com uh, and if you search for Consciousness Hacking London, you'll find our monthly meetups there as well. Great. And you can find me on LinkedIn, Instagram, all the other social places that we've just told you that you shouldn't be going to. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we've got, um, uh, we've got, we've got a, and, and my, my company Mind Unlocked, we've actually got a digital balance online workshop coming up. This is work that we've tested with 300 partners at EY, 200 executives at Cisco. Um, and this is a structured session around uh, basically going into why and how technology manipulates us and what, what we can do about it. And, and, you know, specifically going into everything from deep-seated habit change all the way through to quick fixes. If you're interested in that, then I would suggest you go to this website and if you stick your email in there, then you'll get an instant report from us about our top five apps that we recommend to, to actually boost your mental well-being. And this is stuff that lives on my home screen that I use every day, that we use every day. So that, that's, that's yours to, to, to keep. Um, but I just wanted to give a massive thank you to these folks for giving us time and coming here and, and for you guys for listening and hopefully you've taken something useful and do come and talk to us afterwards. Uh, thank you very much and have a great rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your Live Well. You can join us for more episodes and find out about future LiveWell events at livewelllondon.com. If you'd like to find out more about Naraj and mental well-being for modern life, visit mindunlocked.co. For now, take care, live well, and we will see you soon.